This episode of the Sunday Salon is sponsored by Number Three London Dry Gin, the only gin to have ever been voted world's best gin four times. Containing just six botanicals, it brings together the perfect refreshing balance of juniper, citrus and spice, ideal for the ultimate dry martini, or, my favourite, a gin and tonic. Distilled in Holland, the home of gin, it took them two years to create their masterpiece, working with master distillers, top mixologists and Dr David Cluton, the only man to hold a PhD in gin. The perfect addition to any drinks trolley, number three is available to purchase at selected stores nationwide, including Waitrose and Berry Brothers and Rudd, for £35. Discover gin just as it should be. Hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Azania Jarvis, and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads, and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories, and the joy that books can bring, no matter what genre or style. My guest this week is the journalist and author Katrina Innes. I've known Katrina for a little while now. She's the Features Director at Cosmopolitan, and we shared an office when I was the Acting Deputy Editor at Elle. But I knew of her before that, because of her award-winning investigative journalism. Now she's written her first book, The Matchmaker. So Katrina, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's so lovely to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. (laughs) Uh, Let's start with the book. How would you describe it, and what made you write it? Right, I should have been prepared for this. No, <laughs> I'm really, really bad at doing my elevator pitch. Um, <laughs> Everyone says that, it's so <laughs> yeah. funny. Uh, so it's about a matchmaker called Caitlin, um, and she's building, she's built this incredible business on her kind of instinct and her yeah. knack of knowing who's right and who's wrong for each other. Yeah. Um, she also accompanies people on dates, so they've kind of got a get-out clause, and she can observe to see how her dates are going. She yeah. kind of hides and wears wigs. And <laughs> it's kind of a bit fun. Um, and she also has this kind of amazing relationship with her husband, Harry, which she kind of tells her clients about, like, if I found the one, then you can too. But she's hiding this kind of very serious secret that could destroy her business and her reputation. So it's kind of, and that obviously unravels throughout the book. So there's a few things you said there that I want mm-hmm. to follow up on. But before I do, just a bit of background. You are also Features Director at Cosmopolitan. Can you tell me just a little bit about your path into journalism and into writing? Yeah, of course. So um, a very up and down path, basically. Um, I did journalism at university. I always wanted to work in magazines. I graduated kind of just during the recession when there was no mm. jobs. Uh, I kind of, I mean, I did weird work experience, not really in magazines at all. I mm. worked, uh, helped Wahonda, um, which is now Treatwell. Mm, yes, um, yes. <laughs> I remember Wahonda. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was just basically inputting the salon information. And then from that, I got a job uh, at a trade hair magazine, um, which I worked at for a year. Then I was freelance, which I say was freelance slash unemployed. Because <laughs> yeah. I didn't get any... <laughs> anything pitched in magazines um and then I worked for Weight Watchers magazine for four years actually um all the time just wanting to get into consumer facing magazines like Cosmo like Glamour was convinced it wouldn't happen for me Mm. um and then my friend was working at Look and she said we've got a week's worth of uh desk cover 
Mm. Do you want it? So I quit my job for a week's worth of cover at Look Magazine, which is quite mental at the time. Yeah. Uh, Really worked very hard during that week and they kept me on for two and a half years where I kind of worked my way up through Look. And then as soon as the new Cosmo launched, I knew I wanted to work there. Loved what they were doing with the kind of long form journalism. I wrote in to them quite a lot. Um, That's not how I got my job. The job kind of came advertised, applied for senior editor, then a year ago got promoted to features director mm, so mm. very roundabout I always say to people you don't have to follow that kind of no, traditional get get work experience in the magazine move on that way because mm. I didn't I just knew what I wanted and mm. kind of kept that goal in mind when you were doing that when you were keeping that goal in mind what how did you how did you kind of keep your perseverance up because it's very easy to just sort of slip into a kind of comfortable routine rather than going after that target what what kept you motivated I mean I used to go and actually stand outside the Hearst offices and cry because I wanted to work at it was not my thing at the time I can't remember what it was uh, because I wanted to work there so badly Um, (laughs) so I didn't have my motivation was kind of every single time that I got rejection for a job which was all the time Mm. I would take myself off to a coffee shop read heat magazine because it always cheered me up (laughs) and then I would cry and then I would um, apply for something new so that was kind Mm. of the steps I'd take kind of allow myself to wallow for a little amount of time Mm. Mm. and then and then also I'd always think back to when I I think I had like a week's worth of work experience stylist magazine and I remember delivering the post and being so happy to be there and just so happy to be delivering the post I kind of kept that in mind being like this is where you want to be so also there was nothing else I could think I could do so Mm. uh for a while I kind of thought about moving into other careers but I had absolutely no idea what those careers would be so and some of your work I mean you do these incredible immersive investigations alongside other kinds of writing you worked in the playboy club and I you I really remember reading this piece you did stand-up comedy to try and get over your fear of public speaking what is it about those immersive pieces that attracts you because you know there is a different kind of style of writing which is sort of staying behind a computer and kind of not doing that not pushing you know what what was it that appealed to you about those I just think it's the best way to tell a story. I mean, obviously, there's lots of really good ways to tell a story, but for me, I enjoy kind of immersing myself into a subject so much that I feel like I know it completely inside out. And I think also it's quite a fun way to get quite a serious... Sometimes it's a fun way to get a serious issue Mm. underneath. So actually, the Playboy thing was about whether uh, I could be, I'm a size 16 to 18, Mm. what it would be like for me to be on the play-by floor. You read it, you think that's kind of a fun feature. It's just, what's it like in the club? What are the bunnies like? They're very nice. Um, What's the costume like? Very sore. Mm. Um, (laughs) But underneath it all, it's kind of the emerging attitudes and the way women's Mm. bodies are treated. And you might not necessarily read a feature about that if you thought you were gonna be lectured to on that subject. It's the same, I went um, undercover with a, I call them the Grope Police. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, which is basically the London underground police that are there to catch sexual assaulters on the underground, which is mm. very serious. It happens all the time. It happens to my friends. Mm. It's not a nice thing that exists. But actually, I found telling the story through going underground, seeing how these 
police office work, injecting a little bit of humour in it because there were some quite funny stories. Mm. So it's a horrible thing, but there was some humour in it. And I found that that was a really strong way to deliver quite a serious message in something that, because the Cosmo features are over six to eight pages. So mm. you don't want to be lectured at for six pages. Mm. You want kind of to go on a journey with someone. So that's why I do it. And where do you get your ideas from for all these unusual stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere, really. So, like, with the London Underground one, I just saw this, like, line at the bottom of a news story that said that, that there was a police force, and I thought, oh, my God, that's so interesting. Mm. I'm always looking, because there's always su- subjects that I want to tackle, mm. but I'm always looking for a way for me to tackle them. So mm. I've, I won't give too much away, because it's in a future issue, but I really wanted to do something on domestic violence. So for two years I've been looking for a kind of way to tell that story um, and I found this kind of really unusual charity approach uh, that I've now immersed myself into and have been following. Mm. So it's, it's kind of two-prong actually. Sometimes things will just come at me because I'm reading papers every day and I collect all these random, I've just got like a folder full of clippings with highlighted things or there's sometimes I'm looking for something quite specific because it's mm. a subject that I really want to do. Mm. So. You won the BSME for print feature of the year. Yeah, is that right? I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, what 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 does it feel like when you after all after that sort of struggle to get into the consumer mm-hmm. magazine uh, industry? What was that like? I mean, it was great. I was no, I was yeah. absolutely <laughs> delighted. Um, of course. I mean, it's funny now because I'm just so passionate about the work that Cosmopolitan do rather than what I do. So. Mm. Like, I was really happy because Danny, who's our amazing editorial assistant, she won that night yes. and I wanted her to win more than I wanted to win. It's good, though, because I really... I want people to be able to see the journalism that Cosmo does. Mm. And I think a lot of people still have a very old school idea of what the magazine is. Mm. Mm. So winning awards like that, to me, is more important because it's showcasing what the magazine is doing rather than what I'm doing. Mm. Um, that doesn't make me sound too like, oh, it's about the magazine. <laughs> it is. <laughs> you also written some very personal pieces. Mm. You wrote about your dad coming out as transgender. Mm-hmm. Is it difficult writing those personal pieces? Do you struggle with what to put out there and what not to when it's sort of emotionally, and I suppose similar with the public speaking piece, you know, it's emotionally mm-hmm. soul-bearing in a way. I mean, I actually love writing. I always say it's my type of therapy like I've just written a piece for Elle about uh, losing my mum and it helped me kind of unravel a lot of things in my own brain Mm. about that kind of time and what it was like to lose her but I need to be careful when it comes to because my I mean my and my dad's a playwright so she's very she is very soul bearing as well Mm. but my sister is an engineer um she's more private Mm. I have to think more now that especially now more people are reading the pieces what I'm putting out on behalf of my family Mm. I suppose um because with that transgender piece there was a bit of wasn't wasn't trolling I wouldn't say but there was um it got picked up on quite recently by a really kind of anti-trans group Mm. and then I could see on Twitter they were really dissecting my family life and um my sister's family life actually she doesn't know about this, so she's going to listen now. I'll tell her beforehand. And that reminded me, actually, when I write about myself, I'm not just writing about myself anymore. I'm putting 
other people in the spotlight and I mm. need to maybe be careful mm. in that way mm. what were you like as a child were you a big bookworm what sparked your kind of interest in words and writing um it's funny there's a little poem on my dad's fridge that's like Katie a bookworm sliding beneath my books and I did I did I read a lot as a child and I used to write all these little stories I had like a little area at the bottom of I used lived in this courtyard and there was like a little area with a tree in it and I used to call it Narcissi and write these like little fairy tale stories mm. I spent a lot of time kind of just playing by myself in my own head like I had a mm. skipping club but it was just me and my skipping club and I used to like cycle and collect all my friends and then skip so I was very yeah I was a big bookworm I wrote a lot as I say my dad's a playwright and my mum was a feminist journalist so Mm. writing was kind of in in my DNA I guess. And is The Matchmaker your first attempt at a novel or are there other sort of half half written novels in the, in the drawers? No so there's a full written novel in the drawer that um, nobody wants but um, yeah. if anyone does want it it's there um, <laughs> that I wrote um, uh, that's kind of how The Matchmaker came about actually because I'd written this book and I was trying to get it published uh, doing it um, sending off to agents and then I took on the books page at Cosmo and I was like great I can go to all these parties and tell people that I've written a book and mm. everyone will be amazed and just give me a book deal <laughs> and then I realized that quite quickly that's not how it works I'm not mm. special because I'm a journalist who's written a book there's lots of journalists who've written a book and mm. I still have to kind of work in a traditional sense to get that book out there mm. um, and then when but because of all these conversations uh, my publisher heard that I had a book. They called a meeting with me, heard about the book, didn't particularly want that book. Um, and then they said that they wanted a book based on the... They kind of were thinking about doing a book based on the First Dates restaurant. And then I said, so actually links back to my childhood, um, when I was 16, I used to write stories about a matchmaker who realised that she knew nothing about love. And they were like, oh, and I was like, we could set her, have her in a restaurant. Mm. And then kind of the idea formulated from there. Mm. How fascinating. And then you fitted this in around your full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know that you, you started getting up an hour early each mm-hmm. morning. Is that right? Can you can you tell me about that? Yeah, so essentially because I didn't have a much holiday. Um, I'm not very good at sitting down. I'm learning. I mean, I learned for, through this for long periods of time. Um, so the only way I could fit it in was to I'd get up at 6am and I'd work normally until 7am or 7.30 uh, just writing um, at the time I always remember my husband we had decorators in and my husband asked um, actually they were in the downstairs shop that makes me sound fancier than we are they're in the downstairs shop you know, my husband asked the decorator what's your tip for decorating the house and the guy just went it's paint on a wall and every morning <laughs> I'd get up and I'd say it's just getting paint on the wall mm. and I'd get the words down on paper and then mm. it kind of helped me it made me think it made me see this book as something a lot more simple than perhaps I'd originally thought uh, it would be and then I would edit on the weekends so so many authors that I've interviewed for this podcast say that it's just about getting those words down there in terms of kind of how many 
words and sort of how close to the finished project I mean how rough would they be when you wrote them and how much would you write in that because it's not a lot of time just a, a sort of a tiny window before work I mean it would normally end up being it wasn't a lot of time I'd normally manage to get about a thousand words like literally mm. just plonking them down on the paper and my editor will tell you that my first draft you could <laughs> really tell these words had just been plonked down on paper um so yeah, it was about a thousand. Sometimes it'd be five hundred. I tried to not get too caught up in word count and berate myself for mm. that. And then I'd also I found actually I never I tried to not do much with my time on my commute. I'd just stare at the window and then I'd find that scenes would come to me mm. while doing that and then I'd quickly write them down on paper mm. and then I would type them up at the weekend or Mm. even I'd email them to myself in my notes on my phone and when it came to the kind of plotting of it were you following a, a, a sort of set plot had you planned it out before you wrote it yes so with my this was the pitfall with my first novel was mm. that I didn't plot it out I just let these scenes come to me wrote them and then stitched them together in some kind of vague vague thing yeah um and then I'm a member of a writer's group and one of the girls in my writers group was finding great success with her novel and she ha- they actually everyone in the group has done really well with their novels and they use save the cat um which is this kind of screenwriter's guide to how to properly structure oh, something how interesting is it like software or is it like no a- it's like a, it's a book basically oh, and right. it kind of it dissects the fact that every single story has a kind of similar structure Mm. And at first I was very eye-rolly about it. I thought, how like how pathetic, no. And then <laughs> I began to look into it. And you begin, once you've read it, you notice it in movies, you notice it in books you read, that mm. all of these, every kind of successful story has the same ups and downs. Mm. So I read that and then I plotted it out. Mm. And then, but then I still sort of allowed myself to go off track while I was writing. Mm. So they go to the uh Caitlin goes to the Maldives in the book mm. and that was that was going off track um mm. because I was just writing and then I was suddenly like oh actually I want to do Christmas in the Maldives because mm. I think that'll be really fun mm. so I did plot it out but I also allowed myself when it came to it to let my brain just go off somewhere mainly because I wanted a holiday probably um. <laughs> um, one of the things that I like about the book is the way it sort of combines old-fashioned with very modern because obviously social media is well not obviously social media is mm-hmm. a huge part of it particularly because she has this young social media assistant who is trying to get her to post loads of glamorous kind of pictures of her and Harry on Instagram but then it's also very traditional in that she is a matchmaker and that you know it's not tinder was that a deliberate kind of clashing it was, yeah, I guess it was. I, I mean, I don't know if it was deliberate sort of clashing, but I really am noticing that a lot of my friends are get, getting very tired of things like Tinder mm. and the dating apps. And therefore, this idea of this matchmaker, as I say, I had the idea when I was 16, when none of the apps existed, mm. it almost seemed like her business would, would be more successful mm. during this current time when people are wanting to go back to traditional dating and meet people in real life again. Um, but then I also wanted to discuss what social media does and you can't ignore that it exists and mm. it would play a part in her business. 
And one of the big things it does, which you referenced in the beginning, is create this gulf between how we present ourselves to the outside world and the reality. Is that something that you recognize in your own life? Has that, has that been something that's affected you? I mean, I often feel a sense of kind of FOMO when looking at people's social medias. Where did that idea of pointing out that sort of almost accidental lie that a lot of us just tell in our in honoration of our own lives where did that idea of exploring that come from I mean I guess it came from the idea that I wanted a matchmaker who faked your own life and I think that you would you just would you not if you were going to do that you would use social media and I think we do we do all do it Mm. I mean I do this thing on my Instagram where I do a photo every single day um and then sometimes I've had a really bad day and I'm like, oh, I should tell the truth. I should show the reality of my really bad day. And then I'm a bit like, oh, well, no one wants to see that. Instagram's supposed to be fun. I kind of have this kind <laughs> of tussle with myself. Um, and I do think that it's interesting how much we, and you're seeing this kind of lies, lies and lies and lies of people. You see with the kind of, I mean, Anna Delvey wasn't really Instagram, but the Belle Gibson mm. story. I'm really mm. fascinated in these people that fake Mm. their entire existence online Mm. um so i guess it's kind of just to do with the social world that we're in it's interesting i heard someone describe today this sort of era as being the era of the con yeah it really is is the era of the con and it isn't just social media you're right (laughs) things like anna delvey also speak to that what's your own relationship like with social media you said you post on instagram every day that's very disciplined (laughs) (laughs) Did you find, I mean, what's it like in terms of, is it a good relationship with social media, but also how does it distract and interfere with your work? Um, oh God, it's a huge distraction. And I hate, I hate when I'm sometimes on the train and I look, I'm on my phone and then I look up and everyone's on the phone and I just think, God, this really is the addiction of our times. Like if everyone was here doing a line of coke on the train, there'd be something people mm. would be saying about it, but we're all just sucked into these phones. Mm. Um, so I don't like that side of it because I do the photo of the day that brings me quite a lot of happiness because mm. I like to look back at my memories. Mm. It's a really good way to capture that. Um, I am bad if I've, I have to be very careful if I've just got a Sunday where I don't have any plans. I'll mm. sit and I'll be on Instagram stories and I'll be so mean to myself or even if I'm hungover and then I'm on Instagram stories and people are having wholesome walks and mm. I'm just like in my own filth. No, they're probably not. They're, they're probably, probably not. It's no. probably an old photo. <laughs> yeah. And this is it. Like, it's so funny. Um, uh, so another girl in my writing club, Claire Frost, she's written a book about comparing yourself to other people. It's it's a big thing And it's a big moment. thing. Yeah, it's a yeah. massive talking point. And we were chatting and we were like, oh, but this person's doing that. And then we're like, we've both written books that's pretty much saying what you see on the internet isn't true. Mm. And we're still comparing ourselves. So mm. Mm. <laughs> it mm. makes you, it's interesting. Yeah, well, I had um, Dawn O'Porter on the podcast oh, as well. Fun. And her book, So yeah, Lucky, it's brilliant. also yeah. explores that kind of, mm-hmm. that double life mm-hmm. that we all lead. It's It's clearly something that people are kind of feeling at the moment. And can I ask, do you ever get writer's block? And, and if so... What do you do about it? Um, I get writer's block when I've written a feature, actually. Um, I'll quite often find myself just writing the same opening paragraph 50 times and it just not being... The right one. The right one. For features. For features, yeah. yeah. I've had that. I used to call it multiple introitis. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's really good. It's so hard and and it's so hard to break yourself out of it. 
So again, I adopt my paint, it's just paint on a wall and I just think, just get words down when I've got that. I don't know if that would count necessarily as writer's block. Like my dad's, I don't know if she would call it writer's block, but she's kind of suffered with trying to write a play recently where she's not managed. And that seemed very, very extreme and very hard for her. So I wouldn't call me not being able to write a feature writer's block, but I do struggle every now and then where I get caught in my own head. I imagine other people reading it, which is Mm. always what gets me in a spin. Mm. So when I do suffer from that, I'll try and take myself off. I'll go and sit. I love to sit on trains. Mm. So I'll go and sit on a train, look out a window. And I'm Mm. lucky because I live right beside a train station. Um, (laughs) Where do you get, where do the trains go to? Do you just get anyone? I'll just get a train, like I'll get a train to central London and then I'll get a train back and look out the window and look at the trees and try and let my brain wander. And then Mm. normally that helps or... I'll go and talk to someone about the feature because I often find the the sto- the thing that I'm telling people about the feature is often where I should begin the mm. feature because it's the most important yeah. anecdote, I suppose. I remember being told once by a colleague that after every interview, you should call your mum or your friend or whatever and just say, just tell them about it. Yeah. And then that would, you'd automatically know which path you were going down. Those are the best lines, the yeah. ones that you want to tell people. Yeah. Do you have any rituals in your paint on the wall approach? Is there, do you have any, do you write best a particular type of day? Do you have any sort of funny snacks? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because of um, having to write at 6am, mm. I now think that 6am is my time. Maybe if I had all day, I'd find a better time. Mm. Um, but I would always get up and I'd always light a candle. A candle? Yeah. Scented candle? Just a scented candle because then if I got a little bit stuck, I could just stare at the flame really and that would help kind of unlock it a bit. And also it's a nice treat, everyone likes a fancy candle. Yeah, so. they do, it's true. You said that you sometimes, what would stop you from writing is imagining what someone reading it, imagining someone reading it. We're speaking in that kind of period of time just before the book comes out. By the time this goes out, people will be able to buy the book. But how are you feeling now in this kind of interim period? Oh my God, oh, I'm awful. Um, <laughs> I'm feeling, I'd say I talk a lot to my friends about this and now listening to podcasts like yours and talking to other writers has really helped me because I've realised that lots of authors really, really, really struggle mm. with this time and it does send you a bit, just it, I've never felt more out of control of my own brain than I have done in the past year. Mm. Um, and it's this kind of idea of, putting myself out there people reading it and judging it and Mm. not seeing how much hard work went into it the reviews terrify me I mean I grew up in a household with a playwright so I Mm. know firsthand what reviews do to someone's kind of happiness Mm. and I just know I'm going to seek them out as well which is terrible I was learning about like a blocker um so I'm not I don't have much advice for that yet because I'm still kind of going through that. But yeah, I'm finding it very scary, the idea of people reading it and judging me on it. So can I ask you, obviously you're busy promoting the book at the moment. What's what's next on your horizon? If that's not too, I always feel slightly guilty asking that question. It's like, <laughs> it's like really piling on the pressure. Okay, thank you, next. Uh, but w- what have you got coming up that you're looking forward to? So essentially, I'm... I'm kind of trying to because I'm really bad for thank you next like 
I remember this is going to sound really wanky but the first time I won an award I was like oh well I'm, I wanted to be an award-winning journalist for such a long time mm. just sound, I know that sounds terrible no 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 um, lots of you feel the same and then as soon as I won an award I was like no but that's not enough I want to be a multi-award winning journalist and you kind of and I'm really bad for moving my own goalposts and I know that with the book I remember all I wanted in the whole world was an agent and then I got my lovely agent and then I was like now all I want is a book deal they got the book deal and now I'm like now all I want is for it to be a bestseller and all I want is a second book deal and all mm. I want and all I want so I'm trying really hard <laughs> to take a step back mm. and I've started to write a second book um my friend was like would you ever write a book full-time again and I was like no you've seen me I've gone insane um I won't and then literally as soon as I filed this one I was like oh I've got an idea but I'm trying to really enjoy the writing process. Mm. Um, so that's what I'm looking forward to is writing this book, but not out of a sense of thank you next, but a sense of, gosh, I really love writing. Mm. Mm. Before I let you go, I've got one final question, which I ask everyone, uh, which if you listen, you probably I know, know what the question is. <laughs> <laughs> which is, if you could go back and give you a younger self, one piece of advice what would it be it's funny because obviously I knew this was coming so in preparation I went and looked at all my old diaries and basically my old diaries are just there's such a sad little read because they are just full of like lists like of self-improvement like get a manicure once a week Mm. like fake tan every day stop Mm. eating pasta Mm. Make sure you get up and meditate for 10 minutes every day. It's kind mm. of this constant, constant, constant self-improvement. Mm. And I would, or like, don't drink alcohol this week. And I would always have a glass of wine on Friday and, and feel terrible about myself and really, really, and really beat myself up. And looking back, and again, it's kind of to do with this idea that when I was at Weight Watchers magazine, which was, I felt wasn't the right place for me. It wasn't where I wanted to be. Mm. But because I was so focused on that, I didn't realize all the things I was learning there. I learned so much Mm. there. I learned my interview techniques there. I learned like just so much from that job. And I guess I'd tell myself that learning, you learn by doing, you don't learn by writing these endless lists and being harsh Mm. to yourself. Mm. You learn by getting up and going to work every day and doing your best and just stop being so hard on yourself. Mm. Like you're fine. Mm, mm. that's brilliant advice and a wonderful note to end on thank you so much it's been such a pleasure speaking (laughs) I've really really enjoyed that so to everyone listening uh, The Matchmaker is out now and that's it from us thank you for listening to The Sunday Salon please do share your thoughts about the episode with me I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alicezania and more importantly if you're enjoying the podcast please do rate or review it it really helps other people find it and its position in the charts and it makes me very happy so until next week thank you very much and goodbye